Well, thank you, Steve and worship team. That was actually a perfect song to segue into our message this morning. Again, I want to extend the welcome to anyone who's watching this morning, whether you're on your couch or maybe on the move or something somewhere, somehow watching online, whether you're in some random province or state or country, so glad you're here. Um, as many of you would have known, uh, BC is experiencing some more restrictions, and especially during this, a time as such as this, we need to do our best to reach out to others. And so I, I just want to throw out a really quick challenge. I wanna, I'm calling it, uh, in light of the season we're in, I'm calling it the Sweet Six Challenge. I'm sure someone else could have maybe come up with a better title. Uh, but basically, I want to encourage you to, to find maybe six people in the church that you can call, that you can video chat, that you can connect with in some way, just to reach out to them, encourage them, see how they're doing, maybe offer to pray with them, or maybe just, just you know, make some small talk. Uh, and if you need some help uh, with, with finding a directory, you can t- contact Therese in the office, and she can give you a uh, directory. Well, I just want to give you a heads up today. We're talking about God's design for marriage and sex. And uh, I just want to give you a heads up that it's going to be a little bit longer than uh, my usual messages. And I was, I was considering uh, splitting the message up into two different messages. But you know what? I think it's better for, for the, particularly for the topic that we just kind of keep it all in one. So you might need to consider it like you're watching an exciting sports game. And we have, we've gone into overtime. And uh, we have that bonus material. So, <laughs> but I'll try, to be, I'll try to be succinct in what I say. And uh, I also want to let you know, I have this laptop beside me here, and uh, I want to encourage you, like one of the things that I kind of miss being in an in-person service is that, you know, when when I say something, sometimes once in a while, some might say amen, or they might grunt, or something, Uh, but we can't do that because you're not here. Uh, There there are a few people here, but maybe if you could, if if there's something that I say that resonates with you, you, maybe you can give give a thumbs up, or a smiley face, or a heart emoji, or Whatever, and I'll be able to see that with the corner of my eye. Keep in mind that I'm about 20 seconds, you're about 20 seconds behind me as the service is streamed live. So we're talking today about God's design for marriage and sex. And you know, our world is constantly changing in a lot of ways. And, and one of those ways, this should be no surprise to you, is, is in the area of marriage and sex. The world is, is teaching various things. One of the catchphrases that I hear in our culture, in our world, which you might be familiar with, is the phrase, love is love. And the sense I get from what that phrase might mean is, uh, hey, if two people love each other, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter what they're coming from, they can freely engage in any sexual activity they like, as long as it's associated with some form of love. Uh, In other words, you can do whatever you want, you can choose for yourself. Another philosophy that's in our world right now is, hey, if, if you feel it, if there's something that you desire on your heart, Whatever you desire must be true, and, and it should be safe to pursue, regardless of what it is, regardless of any guidelines. And at the end of the day, you define what's true. There's no one else who defines what's true, and certainly there's no higher power that defines what's true. Uh, we can go on and on and on. There's a, there's a bunch of different philosophies that are circulating our world right now on this topic. Are, are these kind of philosophies combati- compatible with the Christian faith? We need to ask that question. You know, these, these philosophies are so strong that uh, right now, uh, in, in this season, I understand the Canadian government is passing, is wanting to pass a bill, which would potentially make this message a criminal act, depending on how you define it. And so that's, that's kind of how far we've come as a culture. And so this is a, just a very important message. I'm not going to mention what the bill is. Some of you probably know what that is because I don't want to confuse anyone, and there's some things we would agree with in that bill, or some things we would be very concerned about, but I'm just pointing out to the fact where these kind of conversations might be considered criminal one day. 
I also want to say this. Uh, typically, when we talk about marriage and sex and stuff, we typically say, okay, kids, this message is not for you. Go play with the Legos or whatever. And typically, I've been in, a, in that mindset as well. But you need to know that when I look at the world, I see that the world is aggressively teaching a very different message on marriage and sex than what Jesus taught on marriage and sex. And, uh, and so I think we might be living in a time where we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so I would uh, welcome the kids to join. I understand, parents, if you're not comfortable with that, maybe you can have them watch it at a different time or even now. I, I think it's important for kids to be picking up uh, what's being said here. I also want to highlight that this message isn't just for kids or young people. It's, it's for all people of all ages. If you're living and breathing and you have a pulse, this message is <laughs> for you. And so we want to talk about marriage and sex this morning. But before we talk about marriage and sex, I want to talk about what Jesus said about marriage and sex. And before we talk about what he said, I just want to summarize a little bit about what we discovered about Jesus in our series in the book of John. We're taking a break from the book of John, but it's really important for us to summarize and talk about Jesus. Jesus, in the book of John, he, well, in, in multiple gospels, but in particularly in the book of John, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the only way to God, the only one who forgives us, uh, forgives us of our sins, the only one who, 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 who lived a sinless life, uh, the one who is good, who is true, who is, who is loving, and, 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 all, and all sorts of other amazing things that he claimed about himself. And to my knowledge, there's no one else in all of history who has made the claims that Jesus has made. And even if they have, they haven't been able to back it up with anything. But Jesus was able to back up these claims through miracles, through living a sinless life, through uh, dying for us and being willing to, uh, to die for us. Even when he had the power to save himself, he continually made the choice to, uh, to voluntarily lay down his life for us. And he didn't stay dead but he rose from the grave. And I say all that to say that Jesus made some amazing claims about himself, and he backed it up uh, to, to help us put our trust in him. Jesus also, he, he claimed to be good. He claimed to be the, the truth that sets us free. Let me just read just a couple of verses from John, uh, which highlights just a few things that he said about himself and his ministry and his teaching. He said in John 10, verse 10 and 11, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus' purpose, uh, one of his purposes is to give us life and to give us life to the full. He wants the best for us. He wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He is the good shepherd. He loves us so much that he was willing to lay down his life for us. Elsewhere in John 8, it says, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so what I, Jesus was saying is, what I teach is the truth, and my truth is going to set you free. My truth, what I teach is, it's good for you. It's a blessing for you. And elsewhere in John, it says, uh, 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. So Jesus, he is good. He is true. His, and his truth sets us free. He is trustworthy. In fact, there's no one else in all of history I can trust more than Jesus for some of the reasons I've already outlined. And so, uh, so if, if Jesus is the one that we trust and follow, uh, what did he say about marriage? And for me, whatever Jesus said about marriage, I'm going to believe what he said about marriage. Well, there's a passage in Matthew 19. I'm not going to read the entire passage. But there's a passage, the passage starts off with the religious leaders asking Jesus a question on divorce and remarriage. They're trying to... They're trying to trap him. And 
he responds, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, and he says a lot in these first, in these three verses, uh, Matthew 19, verse 4 to 6, it says this, haven't you read, in other words, he's quoting Old Testament scripture, he replied, that, the, that at the beginning, the creator, he's going back to Genesis, he's going back to the fact that there's a God, made them male and female, male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's saying a lot of, he's saying a lot of, a lot of things in these short verses, but note how in responding to the questions, he goes back to defining what marriage is and how it was originally created. But the bigger thing I want you to notice, notice here is that he's quoting Old Testament scripture. He's quoting Genesis. I just want to read to the, just two, briefly, two verses from Genesis that Jesus is quoting. He quotes Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in Genesis 2.24, he said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, um, he's quoting Genesis, and the big, the big thing I want to I highlight here is this. Uh, quite often when we talk about sexuality and people uh, are, are kind of trying to justify their sexual behavior that seems contrary to Scripture, what you have to do is you have to dismiss Scripture. And what I often hear is when we, talk, when we talk about scripture and bringing scripture into the mix of marriage and sex, I, I often hear people saying, listen, scripture was written by a bunch of old guys who were out of touch with the present day realities. And in fact, yeah, I don't know if scripture is inspired. In fact, you know what? Scripture is not inspired. I, I think we can just dismiss it and we go along with, you know, defining marriage and sexuality according to our own terms. Well, here's the problem. Here, here's the thing you need to wrestle with. The one who is trustworthy, good, and true, who died for you, he believed that scripture was inspired. He believed that scripture was true. There are multiple occasions where Jesus was quoting Old Testament scripture as truth. And so if Jesus believed that scripture was inspired and true and godly and good and gave us direction in life, then I'm going to believe that scripture is good and true and godly and inspired by God. And so if that's the case... Um, there's a lot that you need to wrestle with if you decide that you want to dismiss Scripture because Jesus did not dismiss Scripture. Uh, we can go on and read all sorts of other passages, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave it at that. But what I am going to do is if something I say offends you or encourages you or inspires you in some way, uh, I want you to come back and read these references that I'm going to give you now. You, know, you can grab a pen and paper and, and write them out. So other passages that you can read are Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, Leviticus 18, 2 Samuel chapter 11 through chapter 19. That's the story of David's affair. Uh, Proverbs 2, verse 16 and 17. Proverbs 5, verse 18 to 20. Song of Songs, the entire book. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 32. Matthew 19, verse 1 to 12. Mark 10, verse 1 to 12. Luke 16, verse 18. Romans 1, read the whole chapter for context. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through chapter 7. Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 33, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 to 8, uh, Revelation 22, verse 5, and then when you're done reading those references, you can go back and read the entire Bible. And I'm not kidding, because actually when you take a step back and look at the whole uh, story of Scripture, it's, it's actually one big giant uh, love story, which, uh, which uh, uh, connects to... Um, it gives us insight to what an earthly marriage should kind of look like, which I'll get to in a sec. 
And so again, we're, we're, we're sharing a message today on God's design for marriage and sex. And I want to say that um, you need to know that my heart in sharing this is not to beat anybody up. This is not a message of hate. It's actually a message of love. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And to preach the truth is to, is to be loving. And at the end of the day, anything, everything I say today, I'm not really stressed out about saying it because at the end of the day, it's not my opinion. This is just years of me carefully uh, coming to an understanding of how, what God taught. And at the end of the day, this is God's truth. And God's truth is good and true and loving. And like we talked about earlier on, Jesus is our good shepherd. He is loving. He is, he is, he is good. He wants to lead us and guide us in a good and positive and, 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 and just he wants to lead us to blessing. And so this is here for our benefit. As we continue, I want to just put an illustration in your mind, and that is the illustration of a fire. Uh, I have a wood-burning fireplace in my house, and my family and I, we really enjoy it. And it, it's, it creates nice uh, warmth and ambiance in our life. And, um, uh, but, you know, in order for us to enjoy this fire we need to make sure that uh, we're following some guidelines and principles and rules so that the whole house doesn't go up in flames. And so one, some of the things that I do, you know, you know, when, I, when I put on my fire in, in the wood-burning fireplace, is I make sure the damper's open. I make sure my area rug is uh, you know, pulled back from the, the fire so that no embers you know, come out and light, light the carpet on fire. I, uh, I make sure that there's not too, many, too much paper or cardboard or wood in the fireplace so it doesn't fall over uh, you know, and out of the fireplace. I make sure the kids aren't really, well, they're, they're generally discouraged from throwing things in the fire because they don't quite have the best aim and they might hit the fire, they might light on fire and fall out somehow. I have a poking stick and so on. The, the list goes on, but I have all sorts of guidelines and rules and principles so that the fire can be enjoyed. In the same way, God created marriage and sex, but he's got some guidelines and principles and rules that we need to follow in order to enjoy um, uh, the blessing of, of marriage and sex and everything associated with it. And so what are these things that we need to know? What are the things that God affirms and teaches? There's nine things, there's nine principles that I want to uh, talk about when it comes to God's design for marriage and sex. And after that, I want to talk about seven ways that we deviate from God's design. And again, uh, these nine things, they're, they're, although I, I'm kind of wording them my own way, they all come from Scripture. You can check out the references I gave you earlier. Okay, uh, one of nine. Oh, I got a couple amens here. Thanks, Donna and Kelly and Trudy and, and Sharon and Della. and The Harvey said preach, Ryan. Okay, cool, thanks. I love the, uh, love the interaction here. That's great. <laughs> all right, number one. Uh, number one, uh, this might come as a surprise to us. Number one, there is a God. There's a God. <laughs> he created the world, and that means that he creates the guidelines and principles and rules when it comes to marriage and sex. The second one is going to blow your mind as well. Number two, we are not God. Uh, he created the world, uh, Sorry, we are not God. We did not create the world, which means we do not create the rules on marriage and sex and relationships and so on. Now, some of you might be thinking, Ryan, why are you wasting your time saying that? It sounds so simple. But you know what? Uh, at the core of it, uh, when we deviate from God's uh, plan for sex and marriage, we, we get these two points wrong, these first two points wrong. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it starts with someone that says, you know what? 
I think I know best. And you know, I, I, I think I, I deserve the right to say what's right and wrong for, for myself. And in fact, I know better than God. That's kind of where all these deviations that we're going to talk about, that's where they all ultimately start. And this is a real thing. A, f- a few years ago, I had someone email me, and they were interested in attending the church. And they asked me a question on an area of sexuality. They wanted to know my opinion and the church's opinion on an area of sexuality. And I said, well, before I answer your question on this, I, want, I need you to answer one of my questions. And I explained that there are basically two types of churches out there. There are churches which we might call Church A. Church A believes that there is a God, that he's the one who created the rules and guidelines and principles for life when it comes to sexuality. And our desire in this kind of a church is to align our thoughts and, and opinions on the matter to line up with what God says. Church B is one where we come to church with our own preconceived ideas of what marriage and sexuality and relationships should look like, and we twist the scriptures to accommodate what we think sexuality should be. In essence, we are playing God. And then I asked this person, which church would you like to be a part of? And they responded and said, I would like to be a part of church B. And uh, in other words, they were trying to play God. Uh, so that's really important. We have to realize that there is a God and we are not him. Third point. Number three, that God invented marriage. This deserves its own point, and it, deser- it deserves to be said, because there was some time ago, I remember sitting around a table with some peers when I was in college, and they were suggesting that uh, marriage was this, was this man-made thing, and you know, why should we even pursue marriage if it's a man-made thing? And uh, that logic is good and true if it truly is a man-made thing, man-made thing. If marriage is a man-made thing, that we can ignore it. We can brush it off. We can change it. We can redefine it as we like. And whether it's, whether it's an individual or a really prominent pop star who's singing a beautiful song about redefining marriage, we should just go along with it. Or if, if a government wants to redefine what marriage looks like, well, if it's man-made, go nuts. We can do whatever we like. But at the end of the day, we've got to remember that marriage was invented by God. If you go back to the first two chapters of Genesis, you'll see that right, right in, in creation. And uh, you see that right before the fall took place. Marriage is invented by God. And so he defines marriage. Number four, this is a beautiful one. Marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Uh, The scripture is filled uh, from cover to cover with all sorts of language between God and his people. And in the Old Testament, you see God acting as, kind of referring to himself as the groom and Israel the, the chosen people of God acting as the, as the bride of Christ. And there's this, this beautiful language that you'll see throughout the Old Testament. That kind of a lingo is, is, is shared in the New Testament where Christ is the groom and we are the bride. The church is the bride. And even a couple of months ago, we talked about the rapture, Jesus coming back for the church. And the whole purpose of that was not just so Jesus can come back and kick butt, but it, it, the, the fact that Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back for his bride to kick off the greatest celebration of all history. The Bible is one big, giant, beautiful love story. And, and earthly marriages are to, are to reflect, are to symbolize that incredible marriage between Christ and his church. There's a lot of symbolism, I, I believe, in, in earthly marriages that, that are to reflect the, uh, the marriage between Christ and his church. And one of those things I was thinking about on a deeper level this past week, I kind of had a light bulb moment this past Thursday. I remember where I was and, and how I was thinking it. I was thinking a little bit deeper. I know this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I was thinking a little bit deeper about why uh, typically, traditionally, a wife will uh, go through a name change when she gets married. And I was thinking to myself, is that really necessary? Does that symbolize something? And then it hit me. If our earthly marriages are to symbolize uh, our relationship with Christ and the church, 
You see in Scripture that in the book of uh, Revelation, there's, there's a name change that, that happens uh, uh, with, with the people of God. It says in Revelation that Christ's name will be on our foreheads. And you look throughout Scripture, there's many important figures and characters in Scripture when they had this new, renewed relationship with Christ, they would have a name change. It, it was to signify an identity change. Abraham turned into Abraham. Uh, Jacob, uh, his name changed to Israel. We went uh, from Simon to Peter, uh, Saul to Paul. There was constant name changes, and those name changes represented a change in identity. And for the church, um, our, our, our identity is found in Christ. And so, again, just, just, just cool little subtle things that uh, in, in our earthly marriages that are, I think, to our, are to reflect this, 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 uh, this symbolic relationship that we have with, uh, or symbolically um, are there to, to point us to our relationship in, in Christ. And so if marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, it needs to be just as our relationship with Christ is filled with sacrifice and love and faithfulness and a covenant commitment, so should our earthly marriages include sacrifice and love and faithfulness and a covenant commitment. Which leads us to point number five. I know I've got to keep moving here. Uh, number five is marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. And if that's the case, only God is to end a marriage, and he does that through death. And so there's gonna, there needs to be faithfulness. There needs to be a covenant commitment. And, and, and this is a picture of the eternal, permanent relationship that we have with God as his church, as his bride. Number six. Marriage is the only place where sexual intimacy should take place. Intimacy is not to be shared with anyone else. As you know, this is another area where I think there's, there's, there's some uh, symbolism here. I think the, the act of sex, of intimacy, is a very special and holy act, that, and that points to something else. You know, just as a, as a husband might, uh, might enter his wife in a very vulnerable and, uh, and a beautiful uh, way, um, in, in the same way, it, I think it symbolizes something about Christ's presence being in his church. Now, I don't say to say that Christ has sex with us or has sex with, his, with the church, but uh, there is this very special, it points to some very, a very special intimate relationship that Christ enjoys with the church. There's multiple passages in scripture which talks about Christ, the groom, being in the bride, the church, his presence uh, dwelling within us in a very special, uh, non-sexual way. And this intimacy is not to be shared with anyone else. The first commandment of the Lord in, first, uh, in, in Exodus 20, when you go through the Ten Commandments, it says that you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you are not to be spiritually intimate with anyone else. And so in a similar way, our intimacy is only supposed to be preserved in, uh, in, in marriage. Uh, number seven, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Um, and it's a picture of Jesus being faithful to his bride and uh, vice versa. And the bride being faithful to, to Jesus. There's one other interesting thing about this. You know, Jesus goes back and he quotes Genesis. And Genesis doesn't just say that God made, that he made mankind or humankind or people kind or whatever the politically correct term is we use nowadays. But I love how in Genesis you go back, it says very specifically that God made male and he made female. Uh, and, and that's absolutely beautiful. 
And so uh, if, you are, uh, if you were created to be a male, you are good and beautiful and you are made in the image of God. And if you are female, you've been made in the image of God too and you are good and beautiful. And as a result, God calls us to accept the way that he has made us. And again, uh, marriage, uh, this comes back to this whole idea that marriage is, uh, is to be between one man and one woman. Uh, number eight, let's continue here. We've got a couple more amens. Uh, and thank you, Jesus. That's great. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, number eight, marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God. It, it is good. It's beautiful. It's meant to be a, a blessing. And just as a fire would create warmth and ambiance, and in some cases security, or it might help you cook food or forge tools, uh, marriage is, is meant to be a blessing. Uh, and, and in a similar way, you know, marriage brings us companionship. It brings us safety and security to a certain extent and all sorts of other blessings. And this earthly marriage, I believe, is to point us to the ultimate blessing of being basically of being married to Christ and experiencing all the blessings that he gives us. And his greatest blessing is him himself. Number nine, uh, number nine is this. Singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. You don't have to be married. Jesus was not married in a physical sense when he was on earth. And Paul, another prominent writer of the New Testament, he was not single. And in fact, or he was not married. Excuse me. Sorry, I don't know what I said there. They were both unmarried. They were both single. <laughs> uh, and actually, they both recommended singleness as the way to go because marriage is tough. They recommended that singleness is the way to go. And so I want to say this. Uh, marriage is not a requirement or a right. Marriage is not a requirement. You don't have to get married, and it's not a right. People don't have a right to marriage. It's, it's simply a, a blessing that God gives, and some, 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 uh, some are married and some are not. Whether you're married or single, either is a blessing from God. So there you go. There's, uh, for the purpose of today, we could talk about more principles for God's design for marriage and sex, but I'll leave it at that. I know I'm moving quickly. But uh, these um, principles were made for our benefit. They are good. They are loving. They are true. And they are the guidelines that we need to follow in order to enjoy the blessing of marriage, sex, singleness, whatever kind of relationship God brings in our life. So if we come back to the fire illustration, you know, what, what were to happen if one day, you know, uh, maybe today I go home and I watch the football game, I start a fire, and I decide I'm, gonna, I'm going to, you know, uh, maybe reinvent the rules to the fire, or maybe ignore some of the guidelines. And what would happen if I closed the damper when I put the fire on, or I loaded up the fireplace with just all the wood I had in my garage or my, my, by my back shed? Or what would happen if I put a gas tank beside the, uh, you know, the fireplace? Or what if I told the kids, kids, you know what, you, you guys can go ahead and tend the fire. I'm going to go grocery shopping. You can start fires wherever you like in the house. I, I'm going to go, peace out, you know, go ahead and start one in the front entranceway, the stairway, the hallway, middle of the living room. Go nuts. Do, do, do whatever your heart desires. Um, what would happen? Well, my house would very likely burn down and uh, lives would be at risk for sure. Uh, and so in, in a similar way, uh, there are certain ways in our culture, in our world, that we deviate from God's design for sex and, uh, and marriage. And before I get into what those things are, I just want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, there might be someone out there who is, uh, you are, you're viewing uh, online today, you are not part of a church, you are not part of, a, you, maybe you're not a Christian, and you are just curious. 
And you might think that, okay, this, this, uh, this, this goody-two-shoes pastor is going to call me out here, and he's going to be judging me and hating on me. And I'm going to say that is not the case. That is not the case. Uh, these issues that, I, that I'm going to be talking about here, these deviations that I'm going to be talking about, not only do I see them in the culture, but I see these deviations in the church as a whole. I also have pretty much at some level seen all these deviations I'm talking about in my local church, in this local church at some level. And you should also know that I have deviated as well, which I'm going to share in a moment, and in, in, in particularly in one of these areas. And at the end of the day, we were all in the same boat, and, um, and, and we just all need to be aware. I'm not pointing the finger to any individual person. And like I said before, I'm going to say this again. Uh, there's a common denominator between all these deviations I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to highlight seven. We could talk about more, but just seven for today. At the end of the day, it's, there's a common denominator. It's a heart that says, I know better than God. I have the right to define my sexuality the way I want to. And in a sense, it, 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 we, we play God when we do that. And it's a form of idolatry. So here we go. Uh, seven ways that we deviate from God's design for marriage and sex. Got a couple more thank you Jesuses and amens. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Okay, here we go. Number one, lust. One way that we deviate from God's design for marriage and sex is lust. Lust, I should highlight, is not attraction. There's nothing wrong with with noticing that someone is good-looking or beautiful or attractive. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he uses the word lust. I'm loosely defining lust as as desiring someone in a sexual way that is unwholesome for the purpose of self-pleasure. And there are thousands of ways we can do this. The most common thing that comes to mind when we talk about lust is porn. Looking at maybe naked pictures of, excuse me, looking at naked pictures or videos of other people. It, it could also be maybe in a previous generation, maybe we'd be more um, looking at pictures in magazines. It might involve going to a strip club. It might, or a place like that, it might involve, uh, you know, picking up a trashy uh, romance novel off the shelf and letting your, your mind run wild and allowing you to lust in an emotional sense after someone else. And this is um, both men and women struggle in the area of lust. And, and we, all, we all struggle in different ways with that. And I want to say that even if we have none of these tools with us, even if we have no internet and magazines and places to go to strip clubs or whatever, uh, at the end of the day, we are walking around with minds and hearts that are prone to wander and are prone to lust. Jesus said, if you even just look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery with her in your heart. And so as long as we are walking around with our minds and our hearts, we are prone to potentially lust after others in inappropriate ways. And it's wrong. Jesus calls it adultery, but it's also wrong because it devalues the person that you are lusting after and treating them as an object rather than someone made in the image of God. And so if, 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 if our marriages are to reflect our relationship with Christ, the scripture says that our eyes are to be fixed on Christ. Our effect, the affections of our heart and our mind are be, to be fixed on Christ, and, Christ and, and no one else. And so in a similar way, in the context even of a marriage, your eyes are supposed to be just for your spouse only. The, the, the affections of your heart and your mind are, are to be for your spouse only. Now, lust is still wrong. Whether you're married or not, it's still wrong. And I want to be a little bit vulnerable here and share with you my story a little bit here. I, I remember, I think it was around grade six, I went to a sleepover. And, uh, you know, uh, anyways, I, I went to a sleepover. 
And the sleepover, I think, probably would have started off by us playing Monopoly or Risk and eating pizza and eating chips or junk food from the variety store and, and playing a very innocent uh, racing game on the computer as, uh, as friends. And uh, we went to sleep. We woke up, and older brother comes down the stairs in the morning. He goes to the computer, he opens it up, and he shows us some, uh, a bunch of naked pictures of some women. And, and I did not know what to do. I was not prepared for that. On one hand, I was mesmerized because I'm a boy. I was a boy, I'm a boy. And I, I was attracted to um, women. And so I was mesmerized at what I was seeing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I, just, I, I remember the feeling that I felt in that moment. I felt disgusting. I felt dirty. I felt guilty. I didn't know what to do. I just knew it was wrong. And those feelings continued to plague me for years as I continued to struggle with it. I didn't know who to talk to necessarily at, at, at that time, and it's something I struggle with on and off for years, um, that, that, that lust uh, issue. And, um, you know, th- there are times in my life where, where I justified that behavior. You know, I said, you know what? I'm attracted to women. Everyone is kind of involved in this thing. Uh, it's my natural desire to want to then continue to view naked pictures of women, and so I should just go ahead and do that, because it's just a natural desire that's in me. And I had to come to the place where I realized that, you know what, lust is not just something that guys just do, and girls for that matter. It's not just something that people just do because it's natural to them. Lust is something that, is, uh, is, that Jesus calls adultery. It's wrong. It's not something that we should be part of. And the other thing I realized is that, you know, our, our desires should not dictate what is good and true and right in our lives in the area of marriage and sex. Instead, God's guidelines and principles for marriage and sex should be what's ruling our hearts, and that should be what's, what dictates what's good and true in our lives. And so I just submit my desires to Christ, and as I've done that, God has, praise the, praise the Lord, he's been able to give me victory over that area of my life and give me freedom in that area. And I know there's all sorts of people, both inside and outside the church, who are struggling with this right now. And in fact, um, I would not be surprised if, in fact, there's probably a really good chance that there are eight-year-olds in our congregation right now who've been exposed to pornography in some way, and their parents don't even know that. And that's why I'm I'm suggesting that, uh, well, I'm not suggesting, I'm saying that kids are welcome in this message as, as uncomfortable as it may be. Uh, you may have to check in with your children to see if their friends have exposed your children to pornography or some form of lustful behavior. There are children who are inv- involved in this kind of a thing. Uh, there are teens that are touched with lust. There are adults. There are even happily married people who are involved in lustful behavior. But at the end of the day, our desires don't dictate what's true and right and good in our life. God's word, his guidelines and principles dictate what's true in our life. And at the end of the day, we need to come to him with a heart of repentance, and he is good. He, he, he wants to forgive you and help you through your challenge and through your difficult times. And he has the power and the strength to help you through that, which we'll get to the end. We'll, we'll come back to that at the, at the end. All right, number two. Another way that we deviate from God's uh, design for sex and marriage is number two, sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage. You know, uh, when we commit ourselves to Christ and we enter, when we put our faith in Christ and enter a relationship with him, Jesus says, I want you to be hot or cold, in or out. I'm not into this lukewarm, in-the-middle business where you're not sure if you're with me or for me or not. You know, can you, could you imagine going to Christ and saying, God, you know, I want all your benefits. I want all your blessings. I want you to, to hook me up and be good to me. But you know what? I'm not too sure about, 
not too sure about this whole commitment thing. I think I want to give it a couple of years first, you know, to see if you're really uh, good and true and if this relationship's really going to work out. That would be absolutely offensive to Jesus. You'd be devaluing Jesus if that's the way we approach Jesus. And the reality is sometimes that's the way we do approach Jesus. And it's not right. We're coming back to this whole sex outside of marriage in a similar way. When we engage in sex outside of marriage, and you know, one particular thing I'm thinking of right now is a sex before marriage, but sex outside marriage is actually a bit of a broader term. But anyways, uh, when you have sex outside of marriage, you're actually devaluing the other person. You're telling that person, listen, you are not worth the weight and you are not worth the commitment. Ironically, you're also telling the other person to, to devalue you. You are telling the other person, I'm not worth the weight, and I'm not worth the commitment. And that's why living common law is outside of God's design for marriage as well, because you're devaluing marriage, you're devaluing that, that special covenant commitment that God expects out of us in relationship. And I believe that true, wholesome, holy intimacy can only be experienced inside of a committed marriage relationship where there's this covenant commitment in that marriage relationship. And so if you drop the ball in this area, listen, I know it's hard, especially when you fall in love with someone. Those, those, there's just natural urge to connect physically. Um, but at the end of the day, if, if you've dropped the ball in this area, if, if you've fallen short in this area, you need to come to God with repentance. And he is good, he is faithful, he is loving. He will help you and give you the strength you need to live a life honoring to him in that area. Number three, a third way that we deviate from uh, God's design for marriage and sex is number three, adultery. Adultery. You know, uh, God told the Israelites, his chosen people, to be faithful to him in every way. But there were times in their history where they would, they would go astray and they would worship other gods. And it was considered uh, idolatry. But at the same time, God would, God would call them out and say that they were involved in adulterous relationships. They were even called at some point unfaithful Israel. This is why I mean you've got to go back and read the whole Bible. <laughs> um, and this is obviously... It obviously wasn't right because it was violating this faithful covenant commitment that, the, that God and Israel was supposed to be experiencing. And in the same way, uh, you, we are supposed to be faithful to our spouses just as God expects his people to be faithful to him. Um, and we're not to be running after other people. And you need to know that God would never, he would never lead you into an adulterous relationship. That's not his, that's not his thing. And so listen, if you've fallen short in this area, First of all, I just want to say this. I understand it's hard if there is someone who has fallen short in this area, if you have dropped the ball. I, I, I typically, typically, when you hear of someone having an affair, it, the story doesn't go something like this. It, it, people don't, don't wake up and say, man, I've been having such a beautiful, loving relationship with my spouse, I decided to go uh, find love in someone else's arms. That typically doesn't happen. Typically, there's some kind of a situation where maybe certain needs aren't being met. Maybe there's a communication breakdown. Maybe somewhere along the lines, uh, one of the spouses or both of the spouses didn't prioritize the relationship. Maybe there's a generational cycle of some kind of adultery that has been taking place throughout the generations that's never been properly addressed and dealt with. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, adultery is wrong. At the end of the day, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Uh, God would never lead you into an adulterous relationship. And if you've been involved in that kind of a thing, you need to come to God with a heart of repentance and uh, be faithful to the spouse that God has blessed you with. And God is good. He's faithful. He's loving. He's true. He will help you with that. A fourth area 
Um, thank you for the amens and stuff. I'm seeing a couple more. Uh, a fourth area that we deviate from God's marriage, God's design for marriage and sex is in the area of divorce. Um, if, if our relationship with Christ is eternal and permanent and lasting forever, and marriage is permanent, which it is, which is what Jesus affirmed, then that means divorce is wrong. I want you to consider this, and this is something you might have to consider later, reflect on later, maybe this week or something. Uh, God invented marriage. God did not invent divorce. God invented marriage. God did not invent divorce. Divorce is a man-made thing. Now, I understand that uh, divorce sometimes has to happen because abuse, but it's not part of God's design. It's not part of his original plan. And so one way to look at it is that divorce is the lesser of two evils. Divorce should never be celebrated. It should never be congratulated. And it should never be rushed into. But you know, sometimes divorce doesn't happen because, because of abuse. Sometimes people in our world, they just, you just kind of fall out of love, so to speak, you know? And that, 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 that's something I, I particularly have issue with. Uh, the logic goes something like this, you know, um, I think we should get a divorce because I'm not sure if I feel in love with you anymore. I'm not sure if I ever loved you. I'm not feeling the sparks anymore, you know? And if our marriage was a reflection of our relationship with Christ and the church, imagine if Christ dealt with us with the same logic that we sometimes treat our spouses with. Can you imagine if Jesus came up to us one day and said, hey, you know, I died for you and all, and, you know, I sacrificed my love for you, but you know what? I'm not feeling it anymore. I think it's time we went our separate ways, you know? I think it's time that I, think it's time that I had time for me and you have time for you. It's just not clicking anymore. You guys keep on sinning. I'm over it. Uh, you keep on disappointing me. Um, I'm, I'm not in love with you anymore. I, I'm going my own way. Could you imagine if that's the way that Christ dealt with us? Well, praise God, that is not the way he deals with us. It doesn't matter uh, if we fall short, if we are unfaithful, if we sin. God still promised to be faithful with us, faithful to us. One of the most amazing truths for me in the gospel is that it's, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. I think it's in uh, first Timothy or second Timothy. Um, maybe someone can, can find the reference for me online here, but it doesn't really matter. It, it, it says, um, in, in moments when we are unfaithful, God is still faithful. Absolutely amazing. When we sin, when we, when we fall short, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm with you. I love you with an eternal long lasting love. Wow. Praise God. He is faithful. He is good. And I try to implement this uh, and live this truth out in my own marriage with my wife. My wife and I are not perfect people. Surprise, surprise. Uh, sometimes, yes, even the pastor and his wife get into fights. Sometimes we disagree. Sometimes the things get heated. But I've committed myself to never, ever threaten to leave my spouse, my wife Heather. And she knows she can do whatever she wants. She can say whatever she wants. And I am not leaving her, period. As much as, as, you know, as much as it depends on me and, and with God's help, of course. She, she knows that I am for her and I'm going to be faithful to her. And that comes out of a heart of me recognizing that my marriage is to symbolize or reflect God's love for the church. Praise God he doesn't give up. Well, if there's someone out there who has been touched by divorce, uh, listen, I, 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 I can sympathize. I, 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 I get a sense... Um, of the pain that's associated with, with divorce. And the reality is, is that when two people come together in this life, you have 
two sinners coming together and there are bound to be problems. And that's kind of why Jesus and Paul both says, hey, uh, singleness is the good recommended way to go, even though uh, marriage is a blessing. But anyways, the reality is that we are, uh, you have two sinners coming together and there are bound to be problems. And if you've been touched by divorce in some way, uh, you need to come to God with a heart of repentance. And he is, he is good, he is true, he will help you, he will give you hope and, and, and renew your life um, and give you the help that you need to move forward. And if you've been touched by divorce, uh, God's instruction is for us to either reconcile with our spouse or to stay single with the hopes of reconciling with your spouse. Number five, a fifth way, thanks, Deborah, 2 Timothy 2.13. I figured it was around there. Sorry, 2 Timothy 2.13, not 3, I think is what I just mentioned. But anyways, a fifth area that we um, deviate from God's design for marriage and sex is in the area of remarriage. Now, remarriage is totally fine if your spouse has passed, but it's not okay while your spouse is still living. Why? Because remarriage closes the door to reconciliation and it violates, violates the, the principle of permanence. God, when God designed marriage, he designed it to be permanent and, and God is the one who ends marriage and he does that through death. And so when we remarry while our spouse is still living, in a sense, we're playing God. I know this is, that's a tough message to hear, but that's what scripture uh, teaches. And so if you are divorced and separated, rather than getting remarried, you're God, again, instructs you to stay single or to reconcile with your spouse. Now, some people, either way, have decided to get uh, remarried. And maybe you've gotten remarried because you've been, you've been lonely. Maybe you've been desiring a relationship. Or maybe you've, you've remarried out of ignorance, not knowing that this, is, this was not part of God's plan. And, and either way, we need to come to God with a heart of repentance. And God is good and true and faithful. He will help you. Uh, work through that uh, situation. And I want to say this, if regardless of, of if someone has gotten remarried, you should know that um, if you have gotten remarried, even though that was part of not, not part of God's design, um, it, it needs to be treated as a legitimate marriage. And, uh, but you need to treat this, this uh, marriage, this, this, this union with your spouse as your one and only, as your one and only till until God separates you through death. Don't be looking around the corner for that next person that you may want to remarry. Because again, our marriages are to reflect our relationship with Christ. Excuse me. Okay, uh, a sixth area that we deviate from God's design for sex and uh, marriage and sex is number six, same-sex relationships. Same-sex relationships. Now, Jesus affirmed in the short passage that I read that marriage is to be, is to be between a man and a woman. Uh, marriage, that means that marriage can never be between two men or two women. Uh, a, 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 uh, a union with two men or two women could never, I believe, could never reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. A, a sexual union of some kind between two men or two women, they can never properly consummate and they can never become one. And that kind of a sexual relationship can never be considered a real marriage before uh, God in God's eyes. And it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter if the most popular pop stars sing songs about it. It doesn't matter if the world's greatest philosophers philosophize about how that's good and true. It doesn't matter if our government votes it in and legislates it and changes the definition of marriage. It doesn't matter. That kind of a relationship will never be considered a 
good and true marriage relationship in God's eyes. Now, I want to say a word of just sympathy for those who might be kind of in this camp or struggling through this issue. And one of the things you might say is, you know, hey, Pastor Ryan, what, what, if, what, if, I really did, what if I really, what if I'm really attracted to people of the same gender? I, I'm legitimately attracted to someone of the same gender as I am. And I want to just remind you uh, again, like I said about myself, I'm trying to be consistent here with everything. Uh, as I struggle with lust, I've, I've had to uh, tell myself uh, that my desires don't dictate what's true and, and good and right. In the same way, even though you might have a desire to be in a relationship with someone of the same gender, and I believe you're not making that up, I believe that you're experiencing that at the same time, your desires don't dictate what's true and right and good. Instead, God's guidelines and principles dictate what's true and right and good. You might kick back and say, well, don't I have the right to be in a marriage? Don't I have a right to love? Well, no, you don't have a right to be in a marriage. Um, Marriage is not a right. But you do have a right to love in the sense that you have a right to be treated with love and dignity and respect. But love does not equate being in a sexual relationship with someone. You don't have a right to, to marry, but you do have the right to be treated with love, respect, and dignity. At the end of the day, God invented marriage, and, he, and his intention for marriage was that sex was to be long, sexual intimacy was to belong in a marriage between a man and a woman. And, uh, and if you have fallen short in this area, just like we've said in all the other areas, your response needs to be to come to God with a heart of repentance. And God is good and true and loving, and he will help you with whatever you're struggling with in this area. A seventh deviation uh, for today, um, uh, that, that where we deviate from God's uh, plan for marriage and sex, is in the area of gender. It's when a boy says he wants to become a girl or a girl says they want to become a boy and they might make changes either mentally or physiologically or physically or whatever to make those changes to transition or attempt to transition from one gender to another. And at the end of the day, uh, similar to what all the other deviations I'm talking about, at the end of the day, when you do that, you're essentially saying that you want to play God, uh, that you want to define you want to redefine how God made you and that you know best. And, um, and at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a form of self-worship. It's a form of idolatry. And there might be someone out there who's saying, listen, this, this desire that I have to become a, a different gender than I was created to be is, is real and it's true and it's powerful. And in a sense, I would agree with you that I, I believe you're not making that up. I believe that you're you didn't wake up one day and said, I, I just want to change my gender. There's something inside of you that is, that is, that is, that is deep, deeply telling you that you need to be a different gender. But like I've been saying about all the other things here, our desires, in any one of these categories or deviations, our desires do not dictate what's right and good and true. Instead, uh, God's guidelines and principles are to dictate what's right and good and true. He knows best. He's the creator. He loves you. Let him be God. Uh, don't make, don't, don't, don't uh, play God. Accept the gender that God made you to be. And if you're struggling in any way in this category, uh, just like all the other areas that we talked about today, you need to come to God with a heart of repentance. And he is good. He is loving. He is true. He loves you more than you know. And he's more than willing to help you through in your time of need.
So there we have it. Uh, God's guidelines, uh, God's design for um, uh, marriage and sex. We talked about nine guidelines. We could have talked about more, and we talked about seven deviations. And I think if we stick to the guidelines and principles that God gave us, we're going to be blessed, and we're going to be better off because God is for us. He wants the best for us. He wants to guide us. He wants to lead us. He's the good shepherd. But there's a few more things I want to mention here. I don't want anybody walking away feeling guilty, feeling hated on, or, uh, or, or you know, think that I'm pointing the finger to anybody else. I want to leave you with a word of hope here. I want you to consider this. You know, I was reflecting on this the other day. Jesus, when he went to Samaria, before he went to Samaria, he spoke to a woman, a Samaritan woman, before he entered Samaria. And he uh, used this woman to be his spokesperson to the people of Samaria. And let me tell you a little bit about this woman. This woman was married, she was on her fifth husband, okay? Which uh, makes me assume that she had experienced, she had been divorced and remarried four times, maybe, assuming that none of her previous spouses had passed away. She had probably been divorced or remarried four times. She's on her fifth husband. And she's not living with husband number five. She's living with man number six. And so she's in this adulterous relationship with man number six. She's probably having sex outside of marriage. So she's been divorced. She's been remarried multiple times. She's having an adulterous relationship. She's having sex outside of marriage. And this is the woman that Jesus chooses to introduce himself to the Samaritan people. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, his story is, is, includes all sorts of people who have fallen short of God's perfect standard. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Even if you look at Jesus' genealogy, the writers of Scripture don't hide the fact that in Jesus' genealogy there were stories of prostitution and uh, adultery and scandals, embarrassing scandals, but God used those people. He used everyone who drops the ball, which, by the way, includes all of us, and he redeemed their stories, and he still used them in incredibly beautiful ways. Praise God that we serve a God who forgives and redeems and restores us. I don't know where we'd be if we did not serve a God like that. So I want to give you that hope. And if, if, we, if we have deviated in any way uh, from, in some of the ways we've talked about today or in some other ways maybe I didn't mention, we need to come to God with a heart of repentance. And he is so good. He is so good. He loves us. He wants to lead us and guide us as a good shepherd does. And I want to close with, with, by making some of the most important comments here. Um, I don't want you also to walk away you know, thinking that this is like a to-do list or a, you know, the right and wrong list or whatever. Uh, it's not about that. It's, at the end of the day, it's about the cross. You need to remember that Jesus, he died for you. He, he laid his, he laid his uh, life down for you. And through his work on the cross, and we come to him with a heart of repentance, he can forgive us of absolutely anything. It doesn't matter how dirty you feel. Uh, if, 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 you can kind of, if you can kind of resonate with how I felt, feeling dirty and guilty and gross when I was involved in lustful behavior, um, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how gross or dirty you feel or wrong you feel. He is so good and loving. He's willing to forgive us of absolutely anything. And the beautiful thing about the cross, too, about Jesus, about his death, is that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And you know what? That same power that rose Jesus from the dead is living in you. He's living in your heart. And it doesn't matter what, what, what powerful desire is, is keeping you imprisoned or, or keeping you feeling like you're enchained. Uh, that, that same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in you when you put your faith in him. And his power gives you the power to give you freedom in whatever area of life you feel like you were in bondage to. He, he is really, truly stronger than any other force or desire in this world. 
And so come to him. Come to him with a heart of repentance and trust him and his power to give you the freedom uh, to live a life that's pleasing to him and ultimately gives uh, us blessing. Let me pray and invite the worship team to come back. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are faithful, that when we drop the ball and we are not perfect, man, you, you, you are still faithful to us and you don't threaten to withdraw your presence. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and praise you for that. We pray for anyone here in our church or anyone around the world, but particularly anyone in our church who's maybe struggling in some of these areas and maybe they're afraid to talk to someone, uh, maybe they're afraid to take that next step. Um, we, we just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts and in our minds even right now, convicting us in areas that we need to change, to change our minds, change our hearts on these matters, and give us the victory that uh, you so willingly uh, share with us. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't stay dead, but you, but you rose from the dead, and that same power that, lives, um, that, rose, that, that rose you from the dead, Lord, uh, lives in us to give us the power for living a life that pleases you. Praise you, Lord. Amen.